So excited to have you guys here with us this morning. If you would open up your Bible, please, to John chapter 6. That is where we will spend the bulk of today, John chapter 6. We're in this series three weeks in now, starting today, three weeks into this series called Faith In. And two weeks ago, we talked about having faith in the coming Savior, Jesus. Last week, we talked about faith in the coming King, still Jesus. And today, we're going to talk about faith in the living bread, and you'll be surprised to know it's still Jesus. Uh, you'll, you can probably already guess the object of our faith for the next three weeks for those sermons that we're going to have, too. Spoilers, it's still going to be Jesus, okay? That is the object of our faith forever. And we talk about every week what we have on tap, our theology, our application, and our prayer. So our theology this week is that Jesus fully satisfies our need. Not needs, need. We'll get back to that in a minute. And then our application this week is that our desire must be for Jesus. We must desire Jesus. And then our prayer is, God, help us to find satisfaction in Jesus or help us to find our satisfaction in you. And so we, what it, it, it is an interesting thing for us as people. Uh, we have all sorts of pleasures in our life. We have all sorts of things we find satisfaction in. I particularly enjoy both of my jobs as a preacher and as an artist. I enjoy that. I enjoy being a dad. I enjoy being a husband. There are a lot of areas in my life that I find joy and satisfaction in. Those aren't really what we're talking about, though, today. What we're talking about is finding eternal satisfaction, finding full life, full hope in Jesus Christ. If you're in John 6, I'm going to begin reading in John 1, and then I'm going to stop after verse 2, so don't be surprised, okay? Normally, I don't make it through one verse, but today we're going to make it through two before I interrupt myself. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. So the people are following Jesus. In verse 2, you'll notice people are following Jesus because the signs they saw him doing on the sick. It makes sense. Right? Jesus has been opening the eyes of people born blind. Jesus has been healing the crippled. Jesus has been raising the dead. Jesus has been casting out demons. And the people of that day had never, ever seen anything like that before. In fact, earlier in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other Gospels, in the early accounts, it will say stuff like the people marveled at Jesus, they were amazed at Jesus, some trembled at Jesus. And the statement that they would continue to make is, we've never seen anything like this. No one had ever seen anybody speak to demons before and have them come out of people. No one had ever seen anybody make the eyes of a man born blind open up and be able to see. No one had ever seen somebody raise anyone from the dead except for like uh, rarely with the prophets like Elisha or Elijah. This was just not commonplace. And so the people were marveling at Jesus and they were following him not because they cared about Jesus but because they loved the things that he did. They were impressed by his works. They were impressed by his skill set. They followed him because of how impressive it was. Uh, it was a show. You, you didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus was going to heal somebody. In fact, in Matthew chapter eight, the Bible says that as people found out where Jesus was, they would bring to him all of their sick and all of their demon possessed, and Jesus would heal them. If, if you're guaranteed, if like as many as people are coming to Jesus are being healed, like you're bringing your sick families. There's no doubt that all of us in here have somebody right now, either in our immediate family or in our friend circle, who is going through something. They're battling with cancer or they have some kind of a sickness. And certainly if we were walking around and there was a guy in our midst who was healing everybody who came to him, we, we would throng to that guy. It's not surprising 
Okay? Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's awesome. So see, you're already in John 6. Don't, don't sweat it, dude. Don't be embarrassed by it. That's awesome. You're in the Bible, right? So I didn't mean to, like, that was awesome. I, I am waiting for the day, like, so my wife is setting as, as an emergency contact on my phone, and so uh, my, whenever she texts me or calls me, it rings or it makes a noise, and I'm just waiting for that day to happen when she forgets that, like, and she just texts me, you know, and it, I forget what noise it is. I should probably make sure it's not something too crazy, but, but this idea is that the people were following Jesus. Now, it looks, just on the face of it, it looks like they're following him because they're, they care about Jesus. But that is not what's happening. They're following him because they care about the works he's doing. They're following him because they're impressed by him. They're following him because they can get something from him. Now, here's the way this story unfolds. It's a story that maybe many of us are familiar with. This is where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Uh, you should just know, I said that in the first sermon and I corrected myself, so I'll do it again. You don't have to know this. It probably won't be on a test later. Um, but it is interesting to note, I'll say it that way, that in the scripture, whenever you see a count of a people, it is, it is usually just counting the guys 20 years old and older. So in the Old Testament, whenever it says 600,000 people came out of Egypt, they're just counting men 20 years old and older. So if you're a kid or if you're an adult woman, you're not being counted in the census. And so here they're saying 5,000 people uh, doesn't mean, and the Bible actually says, not counting women and children. So there are a lot of people I don't know if this is a great reference point, but years ago when I was 23, uh, 22-ish years ago, I went to India and we would hold these little church services in these little village houses. And the men would be working the fields and so most of the people who were coming into the village church, which was literally a little mud room with a grass hut, like grass roof, whoever's house, whoever, they, whoever let us use their house that day. And we would be like 30 people packed into this tiny little space. And I would say that 80% of them were women and kids because the men were working in the field. So I don't know if that translates to first century Israel, but there's a lot of people, okay? There's a lot of people, 5,000 people, not counting women and children on this hillside following Jesus around because he's doing these miracles. And so Jesus says to his disciples, the 12, he says, hey, these guys have been with me for a long time. They've been traveling with us for a long time. They don't have anything to eat. Set some food before them. And Philip says, if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough to get food for all these. So not many of us carry around denarii anymore or talk about denarii anymore. So, so that you will know, a denarii is a day's wage, okay? It was just kind of considered a standard measure of unit, a day's wage. So he basically just said eight months' salary wouldn't buy enough food for all these people, okay? And then Andrew goes, well, there's this kid here, and he's got, he's got five loaves of bread and two fish, so don't think like loaves of bread, think, or like, you know, like French baguettes or anything like that. Like he wasn't pedaling around on his bicycle with a little basket in the front. Think like five pita bread, okay? So he's got like five pita bread and two little fish. And Jesus is like, yeah, cool, that's enough. And, and the disciples are like, <laughs> okay, you know? And, uh, and so that's my version of it. The text doesn't say that they said, okay, kind of snarky, but I am... It's a lot of fun in here. Um, but, and for those of you who are just listening by audio, I was indicating my brain uh, when I said in here. So he comes, to the, he comes to them and he says, look, he goes, have them sit down in groups of 50. 
And in my head, I, Peter, I identify with Peter a lot, not the so much Peter after Acts when he was a bold preacher for God, but Peter of the gospel who's always going, what the heck? He was always the one asking questions. He was always the one uh, making weird comments. I would be a worse version of Peter. And when they're having him sit down in groups of 50, I would have been the guy who would have been like, yeah, because that's going to help. Right? You know, like we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. And here's what I imagine as Jesus has the 12 disciples, he prays over the bread and he breaks the bread and he breaks the fish and he begins to distribute it to his disciples to distribute to the 5,000 plus people. And I always wonder how that went as he's praying over it and he's breaking it and he begins to put it into the hands of this disciple. I'm wondering if disciple 12 on the end is going, there's not going to be any left. It's like literally a kid's lunch, you know? And he, he breaks it and he, he, keeps breaking it and he keeps portioning it out to the 12 and he keeps portioning it out and he gets down to the last guy and then it's there and you got to be impressed with that like you're up close like this is not like you know stage magic you know where there's all sorts of lights and dark and mirrors and stuff you are standing next to Jesus and it just keeps there's more and then Jesus says now turn around and disperse it amongst the crowds and I I gotta think that at least a little bit of you is going yeah, okay. <laughs> but they begin to distribute it to all the people. I mean, think about it. A little kid's lunch just got divided to 12. That's a big deal. But then the first group of 50 that one of the 12 walks to, there's enough. And then there's enough for the next group and the next group and the next group and the next group till they're all fed. And then Jesus has the crazy audacity at the end to say, go gather up the leftovers. And there are 12 baskets full of leftovers. They ended up with more at the end than they began with. And people are losing their minds. It's insane. I want to point out to you really quickly, okay, that there are a lot of people in our Christian world right now, people who call themselves Christians, and maybe they are. I have a big question mark with that. But there are people today who would say, oh, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't believe in his miraculous power. There are a lot of people who are saying that. There are books you can read. There are commentaries by it. And here's the way that they explain John chapter 6. This is what they say happened. I, I'm going to just tell you up front, we disagree with them. We completely believe here in the miraculous power of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus can do whatever the heck he wants to do. But here's what the people who say there are no miracles, here's what they say. They say, Jesus got up and he said to the people, to the disciples, feed them all. And they're like, we don't have anything. And a little boy comes forward with his lunch, five loaves and two small fish. And he comes forward. And then everybody in the crowd is so moved by the generosity of this boy. They pull out of their robes the lunch that they were hiding because they didn't want to have to share their food with everybody else. And so 5,000 plus people pull out their secret hidden lunches and begin to share them with everybody else, and it's the first potluck supper. That's how people describe John 6. That is not what happened here, okay? That is not what happened. Jesus miraculously multiplied this bread and this fish, and here's how we know, okay? Look at verse 15, look at the reaction of the crowd. Perceiving then that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here's what happened. The people were so amazed by it, they said, dude, we got to make this guy king like today. And they wanted to by force make Jesus be their king. Now, if we stop right there, if that's as far as we read and we pretend that the rest of the Bible doesn't exist, which would be foolish, 
But if we stop right there, it makes the crowd kind of sound like they get it. Right? They were following Jesus in verse 2 because he did signs and miracles, and now they want Jesus to be their king. It sort of sounds like they get it. It sort of sounds like they understand who he is. It sort of sounds like they're enthralled with him. It sort of sounds like they're impressed by him. It sort of sounds like they want him to really be their king. But that's not what's going on here. I'll show you in just a moment. The rest of this story that you're familiar with uh, is that Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray for a little bit. He disperses the crowd. He tells his 12 disciples, get in the boat, go back over to the other side of the sea. This is where Peter is walking to Jesus on the water later, right? Jesus comes late at night and, uh, and he's walking out. And so here's, here's the story. A big storm comes and the disciples have strained against the oars for several hours and have only made it three miles across this sea. They're not making much progress. Okay, Jesus, who is praying, it's the middle of the night by now. Uh, there's a storm, so middle of the night is dark, right? There's a storm. And Jesus, the Bible says, up on the mountain is praying, and he looks out and he sees the disciples about three miles from the shore. And so that, to me, is cool and miraculous all by itself. And then Jesus comes walking to them on the water. He, he is able to walk three miles on the water faster than they're able to row any further. And the Bible says that the disciples see him and they're like, oh, it's a ghost. They, they get scared. Jesus goes, no, it's me. Hey, guys, it's just me. And Peter goes, if it's really you, tell me to come walking to you on the water. And Jesus goes, come on. And the Bible says that Peter stepped out of the water and started walking on the water to Jesus. And then he sees the wind and the waves and he begins to get scared and he begins to sink down in the water. And he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs him and pulls him up out of the waves. There are so many paintings done of this. Uh, you can go and you can find it. And, and I've heard sermons, and early in my life I would say, wouldn't it be amazing to be like Peter, to trust God enough to be able to walk on the water? And, but, but I want to point out two things. One, the Bible doesn't call us to be like Peter. It calls us to be like Jesus. And two, Jesus walked three miles. Forget Peter's couple of steps. Jesus had walked three miles on the water, and the Bible says he intended to pass them by. Ryan version feels like it was probably because he saw how slowly they were going and he was faster just walking. But the Bible says Jesus intended to pass them by. And, and then Jesus gets into the boat, the Bible says, and if you put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together, the Bible says that the moment Jesus got in the boat, the wind and the waves stopped and the boat reached its destination. And now they're on the other side of the sea and it's the next morning. Now, the crowd that wanted to make Jesus king the night before, they wake up uh, and they see that the boat is gone, and they knew Jesus didn't go with them, but Jesus is nowhere to be found. So they run around the sea, and they get to the other side. And listen to what they say to him. This is beginning in verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, is what that means, when did you come here? And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the bread. Catch this. John 6, 2, they're following Jesus because of the signs and miracles he's doing, right? He's raising the dead. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's causing the crippled to walk again. He's casting out demons. The next day, Jesus, who we're going to believe, okay? Jesus says of the crowd, you're not following me anymore because of the signs. You're following me because you ate your fill yesterday. They're following him the next day because free food, okay? That's it. Think about it for just a minute. Jesus, we're going to follow you because you do really amazing signs. He does really amazing signs. He feeds the whole crowd. We need to make this guy king. The next day they're following him, not because they really want him to be king, but because free food, a free meal. That's what they're after him for. That's what they're looking for him for. 
because they can get something out of it. And then check this out. Jesus says to them in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. Think the bread that I fed you yesterday, but work instead for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the son of man will give you for on him. God, the father has set his seal. And then the crowd said to him, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom God sent. In other words, Jesus says, here's the work that you need to do. You need to believe in me. Now, remember the night before they wanted to make him king, but now he's saying, but you need to believe in me. And what Jesus is saying about himself is that he came from God, that he is God. And he's saying, believe in me, put your faith in me. And then look at what they say. So they said to him, verse 30, what sign will you do that we may see and believe? What work will you perform? I want this to perturb you just a little bit. I want this to get under your skin just a little bit. I want this to irritate you just a little bit. The day before, John 6, 2, the people are following him. Why? Because of the signs and miracles he's doing. Because he's raised the dead. Because he's healed the blind and he's healed the crippled. Because he's, he's done miraculous, powerful works. That's why they're following him, right? Then he feeds them, and the next day they're following him because he fed them miraculously. And then they say, tell us what we do. What's the good work we need to do? And he goes, here's the good work. Believe in me whom God sent. He goes, quit looking for bread that dies. Quit looking for bread that, throw, that rots. Look for me, the bread of life. Find me, the true food. And, he goes, and then they said, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll believe in you if you do a miracle so that we can believe in you. Think about the arrogance of that statement. Why were they following him the day before? Because he did miracles. They already knew that he was doing things no one else could do. Right? They already knew he was raising the dead. They already knew he could cast out demons. They already knew he could open up the eyes of someone born blind. They already knew that. And now they see him multiply food. They know he can do miracles. They know he can do signs. And he says, here's the one work you lack. Here's the one thing you need to do. Believe in me whom God sent. And they're like, prove it. If you prove it, I'll believe in you. You, you understand really what's going on, right? That they're not interested in putting their faith in Jesus. They're not, if all they really wanted was proof, they already had it. It's why they were following him yesterday. Many of them had already seen their loved ones healed. Many of them had already seen their cities radically changed because of what Jesus has done. And when Jesus says, yeah, yeah, but you want me to be your king, but you don't believe in me as God. Believe in me. They said, do something and we'll believe. If you'll prove it to us, we'll believe. And yet, why were they following him yesterday? Because no one was doing the things he was doing. You're with me, right? They, they yesterday said, man, this guy's doing signs and works. We're going to follow him. And then the next day he said, believe in me. And they said, do a sign and work so that we can believe. It's hypocrisy is what it is. It's arrogance is what it is. It's, it's saying that I don't actually care about you, Jesus. I only care about what you're going to do for me. That's what it's really about. And here's what they say. Here's what they want him to do. Listen to what they say. So I'll read it again beginning in verse 30. So they said to him, what sign will you do so that we can see and believe? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So here's what they're doing. They ate yesterday. Yesterday they followed Jesus because of miracles. Today they're following Jesus because of free food. Jesus says, you're looking for food that perishes. Look for me, the true bread, the true life that satisfies every need. And they go, we'll believe in you. We will. Just prove it. Hey, here's an idea. I wonder how this went, you know? Hey, yeah, we'll believe in you. We got an idea. So God used to feed our fathers with bread, manna in the wilderness. Maybe you've heard of that, Jesus. Jesus. 
uh, do that. Feed us again and we'll believe. That's what they're asking. Think about how ridiculous, how profane, how wicked that is. Feed us one more time and then we'll believe. You understand that if he feeds them one more time, they're still not believing because what are they going to say? Show me one more thing. Do one more thing. Prove it one more time. Make your case once more. Do something for me just this once. So Jesus looks at him and he says, listen, he goes, a couple of things that I need to correct you on. One, Moses didn't feed your fathers in the wilderness. God fed your fathers in the wilderness. And he said, and that bread was gone. And he goes, but I am the true bread. Jesus, speaking of himself, says, I am the true bread that comes down out of heaven. I am the true bread that gives life. And so Jesus is telling them, look, you, you need to believe in me. You need to put your confidence in me. So we were talking a moment ago that our theology is that Jesus satisfies our need. We'll come back to that still again in just a minute. But the application is we must desire Jesus. We must desire Jesus, not the healing, not the full belly. Our desire must be for Jesus. And what we're seeing in this, in what we see in this chapter, verse six, or, wow, what we see in John chapter six here is that the people's desire wasn't actually for Jesus. The people's desire was for what he was going to do next, for what he would give them. Does that make sense? They didn't care about Jesus. If it had been somebody else who could do the cool tricks, they'd have followed him. Look at verse 40. Jesus says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the Jews were grumbling against Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And now he says, I've come down from heaven. Catch this, please. Catch this. The night before, after he fed them, they were willing to make him king. But now he says, believe that I came from heaven, and they hate it. Isn't this Joseph? Sorry, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father. We know his mother. How dare he say he came down out of heaven? Do you see how it shifted? Now he's not feeding them. Now he's not doing the signs. And they're like, you know what? We're done. You want us to believe in you? We know where you came from. We know your mom and your dad. We know you didn't come from heaven. He's going, look, all you've got to do is believe in me. All you've got to do is desire me. And you have eternal life. Every other bread will fail you. Every other thing will fail you. Every other miracle will fail you. But I, he says, am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. And whoever believes in me lives forever. Yeah, you came from heaven? They went from wanting to make him king to ridiculing him. In the space of a day, less than 24 hours. Why? Because he wouldn't perform for them. Because he wouldn't give them the bread that they wanted. You understand then that their affection for Jesus had nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do for the bread. And their affection for Jesus had nothing to do with, the, uh, with Jesus, but had to do with their great aunt Ruth, you know, being healed from leprosy the day before or whatever it was. Their affection for Jesus wasn't for Jesus. Their affection was for the things that he was going to do. Their desire was not for Jesus. Which is why when Jesus raised the bar even a little bit further, and he said, you know, look, 
He goes, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, because what are they wanting? They're wanting bread. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the true food that comes down out of heaven. He goes, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no share with me. He basically told them, you have to partake of who I am. You have to partake of who I am. You have to be filled up with who I am, Jesus says, or you get nothing. And in John chapter 6, verse 60, and in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says that the crowd said, this is a hard teaching. Who could accept it? Who could accept this? And the Bible says in John 6, verse 66, that that day they left them, they departed them. They departed from them. The miracles aren't worth it. The full bellies aren't worth it. This guy's saying he's God. This guy's saying he came from heaven. This guy's saying that the only way to eternal life is through him, not worth it, they say, and they walk away. The whole crowd disperses, and Jesus turns around, and there are 12, his 12 disciples, one of which Judas, who would betray him. (laughs) And he says to them, you don't want to leave me also, do you? And Peter says, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Peter's saying, my value in you is the message of eternal life. My value in you is as the bread of heaven. My value in you is as the everlasting food. My value in you is in eternity and not what you're doing for me in this moment. And Jesus says, I chose all of you, and yet one of you is a devil, meaning Judas, who was about to betray him. But please catch this. Catch that there were a whole group of people, a whole crowd of people who said, man, this guy is doing things we've never seen before. Let's follow him to see what he's going to do next. Catch that there was a whole crowd of people whose bellies were hungry after three days of following him, and he fed them, and they said, we need to make this guy king. We like his politics. He heals people, and he fills their bellies. And that shifted the moment he said, yeah, but you need to believe in me as God, as the Savior from heaven, as the bread of life. Believe in me. And they're like, okay, we want to just prove it. And he goes, golly, guys. He goes, you're still looking for bread from heaven. That's what they wanted. Listen to what they wanted. They didn't want him to like, you know, pull back the veil and expose himself in all of his glory and all of his splendor. They said, we'll believe you if you cause bread to pile up on the ground. And he goes, my goodness, you're still looking for the temporary You're still looking for bread. You're still looking for food from heaven. You're still looking for something to fill your bellies. He goes, you're thinking too short-sighted. He goes, set your eyes on me, the living bread. Set your your eyes on me. Believe in me so that you can have everlasting life. Whoever believes in me will live forever and not perish. So Jesus is asking the people to do, to shift from a temporal view to an eternal view. See, I said a moment ago, Well, let's back up. The scripture that I read a little bit ago while we were doing worship was from Psalm 73, and it's a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph, I didn't read the entirety of the psalm. I kind of, it was, it's a long psalm. So I read big chunks of it though, but Asaph is a little bit discouraged. And Asaph is discouraged because he noticed the wicked seem to be living really well. Their bellies are full. They have everything that they could want. They're doing really well, it appears, to, to Asaph. And he's like, man, for a little while, this is Psalm 73, for a little while, he said, I was envious of the wicked. My feet almost slipped. My steps almost stumbled. He goes, for just a little while, I thought, I want to be like those guys. And he said, and I was trying to think about how to understand this. Why are the righteous always forlorn? And why are the righteous always suffering when the wicked seem to get everything they want? And he said, for a little while, he goes, I was confused about this. And then he goes, and then I came into the sanctuary of the Lord. And he said, and then I remembered, 
their end. That you set those wicked people in slippery places and they end up in destruction. Suddenly Asaph was like, okay, wait a minute. They're getting everything they want now, but their end is destruction. And then Asaph remembered his end as a person who followed God. And he said, and I remember that you, O God, have taken me by the right hand, that you will lead me into glory. And he said, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that I want but you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you, O God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what he says. You're my portion forever. See, the people following Jesus in John 6 did not view Jesus as their portion. They viewed the healing as their portion. They viewed the food as their portion. It is not difficult it is not difficult now to turn on the TV or to buy a book or to listen to a podcast and hear preachers say that what God wants to do is make your body healthy and fill your bank accounts. It's not hard to find those guys. They're everywhere. There are people who will tell you, and they've lied to you, and I'm sorry, but there are people who will tell you that if you follow Jesus, everything will be better. Your life will go the way you want it to go. That is, that's a lie. I mean, all you got to do is read through the book of Acts and see how many people following Jesus died brutally. If that's not enough for you, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read the history of the church and the people who have died following Jesus. I get so tired. Listen, can God fill your bank account? Certainly. Can God make your body healthy? Certainly. If that's what you're following him for, you're not really in love with God. And there will come a day that he raises the bar and says, what you really need to do is give your life over to me. And you'll say, too much, too much. And you'll be done. I know I'm not older than everybody in this room. I'm probably kind of in the middle of the road. But I've been doing ministry for 25 years now, and the number of people I've watched walk away from Jesus, I couldn't possibly give you a complete list of the number of people I've watched walk away from Jesus. And almost every one of them... It's been because of one of three things. Like the people in John 6, they said, prove it. I need more proof. Give me proof and then I'll believe. And they felt like they didn't have enough proof, so they walked. Or the loved one that they really cared about got sick and didn't recover. Never darkened the door of the church again. Or they wanted more money and they felt like following God, they couldn't have it. I, I By the way, well, well, we'll talk about that another time. Please hear me say this. I, I can't know your heart, but I will tell you this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, test yourself, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Don't you know that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Paul is a jerk and doesn't tell us what the test is. It'd be awesome if he said what the test was so that we would know. Right? How can I know if I passed the test or fell the test, Paul? How can I know if I'm really in Christ, Paul? You don't tell us what the test is. Uh, I, I suspect, though, that here is a good starter. If you're following Jesus for what you can get out of him in this temporal life, you're not really in it for Jesus. This is a generalization, so please forgive me. Please do not take this as an as a insult to all First Baptist churches. But First Baptist churches used to be a hub of business. They would start in a community so that all the prominent business people could meet together so they would know who to do business with. 
you go to some of these little tiny small towns and I've preached in a lot of them and that's still where it is. All the most prominent business people in that community go to that church so they can, it, it was about, not for everybody, don't make it too broad of a brushstroke. There are still people who love Jesus and faithfully taught him in those churches. But for a lot of people, it was a business endeavor. I got to know who to do business with, you know? That, that's not about Jesus, right? It's about business. It's about the pocketbook. That's about bread in our bellies. These people in John 6 followed him the day before because he did signs. Last night, wanted to make him a king because he fed him. Today, are following him for free food. And he goes, just believe me. Believe that I'm God. And they're like, prove it. He goes, believe that I came from heaven. And the people who yesterday wanted to make him king go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is too much. We know your mom and dad. We know where you came from. No, no, no. This is too hard. And then he says, believe in me. I'm the living bread. Eat of me. Absorb my life into your life for eternal life. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is too hard. Too much. You've asked too much of us. I was just here for the free stuff. If your gospel in your mind is I can follow Jesus and he requires nothing of me, then you have mislearned Jesus. If the gospel in your mind is I can follow Jesus so that my life can be happier with no regard for how my life will live for Jesus or honor Jesus, you do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Because the Jesus of the Bible says, I came from heaven. And unless you partake of me, he says, you have no part with me. That's the bar. That our lives are partaken of Jesus. That we have, if you will, to use the text, eaten of Jesus. He's our true bread. He's our true food. We'd find true satisfaction in him. If my wife or kids ever have a crippling illness, I promise you, I will be praying every day that God will heal him because he's able to. And I've had times in my life where I've been without food and food has just shown up. There was a time in my college days, I was renting a room. I was very poor. Um, I was renting a room out of a couple's house, 60 bucks a week. Every Friday I had to pay this couple and I had a shelf in the refrigerator and I had a shelf in the cupboard and the husband, they were probably in their 70s. The husband's super nice. The wife, super mean. <laughs> and uh, she just was. She was just very, very mean. And I, I did landscaping at this time in my life. Uh, there was a Sunday school teacher at our church who had a landscape business, and so I was one of the guys on his crew. And we'd meet at the, the fenced-in yard, and we'd hop in the work truck, and we'd pull the trailer, with the, and we'd have our list of projects for the day. And I showed up at work one day, and, uh, and it was raining, and so I was the only one who came to work. Everybody else called in sick. And my boss said, well, today's job, I lived in Lubbock at this time, he goes, today's job was to go weed eat and pull all the trash out of the flower beds at the mall. And I said, okay. And so he dropped me off there, and he said, I'll come pick you up uh, this afternoon. I said, all right. And I had no money. For the last two weeks, uh, the old guy, he, I can't remember his name, but he would buy uh, at 
the Lowe's, the, uh, the grocery store there in Lubbock, he would buy a bag, a five pound bag of bananas because what would happen is as the bananas started to brown, they'd just put them all in a bag and sell the whole bag for like 75 cents. And so, so every morning I would squeeze a banana into my mouth. It, you know, like you try to, you can't peel it. It like would break somewhere and you just kind of squeeze it into your mouth. That was my, that was my breakfast. And I had an old piece of a French baguette. So not pita pocket, think French baguette. Now I had an old piece about the size of a baseball on my shelf in the refrigerator that I'd take a bite off of at night. And that's what I ate for two weeks. A squishy banana in the morning and a bite of stale bread at night. And there I was cleaning and it was raining and everything was wet and I was cold. And I'm praying and I said, God, I owe $60 to the lady today. And I have no food. And I had nothing, nothing. I didn't have a savings account. At this point, my parents had disowned me. I didn't have, uh, we're fine now. Um, but at this point, my parents weren't helping me out. I had nothing. And uh, I had pulled up a pile of trash. Keep in mind, wet, muddy, nasty. I pull up a pile of trash, and I pick it up, and underneath the pile of trash, two brand-new, crisp-from-the-bank $50 bills. Not muddy, not dirty, nothing. Just sitting there on the ground. Not folded, just sitting there, one on top of the other. Brand-new bills in the middle of this flower bed, in the middle of the parking lot, there in Lubbock, Texas. And everything else is nasty. And I was just like, wow, thank you, God. And I paid the 60 bucks and I bought 40 bucks worth of groceries. So hear me say this. I have seen God do a lot of really cool things. A lot. And that, that's, just, that's just small. I am not following him for the 100 bucks in cash under the pile of trash. If I have to eat the squishy banana and the old baguette, for the third week and a fourth week, Jesus is still worth following. I'm not in it for the prizes. Does that make sense? I'm not in it for the life or the health of my wife and my children, though I'll pray for that. I'm not in it for what this world holds. What did Asaph say in Psalm 73? I remembered their end and I remembered my end. He's talking about what comes next. Hear me say this. If you want to follow Jesus for the reward, that is okay so long as you understand what the reward is. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for anyone who comes to God must first believe that he exists, and second, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The reward in Hebrews 11 is eternity. The reward in Hebrews 11 is walking into the presence of God. The reward in Hebrews 11 is standing before God, righteous and holy, without blame. The reward that we're doing this for is what comes next, not what this 70 or 80 years holds. And all these people in John 6 were satisfied in is right here and right now. Give me food today. Heal my family today. Do one more thing today, and I'll follow you for another day. I guarantee you if he made bread rain down on the ground the next day, they would have said the same thing. What's it going to be today? At some point, at some point, our affection for Jesus, our desire for Jesus has to be about Jesus as God and not Jesus as bread maker. At some point, our desire has to be for Jesus as God. Please tell me that that's clicking in here somewhere. Because if you're in this for the bank account or the health, 
It's just, we're all going to die. You know that, right? Like, unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die of something. <laughs> like, I, I know I don't look like it. I tore up my ankle really badly eight months ago. Uh, I have two ligaments, one that's completely ruptured, another that's almost completely ruptured. Kept trying physical therapy. It's not getting better. In five and a half weeks, I'm doing surgery. For the four weeks after that, I will be sitting up here on a stool with my foot up on a, another stool because I, I'm not allowed to walk for a, a month. And, and I do not want to spend any money on that. I don't want the six months recovery, but I'm not in this so that Jesus will heal my ankle. I'm in this because Jesus is God and because what comes next matters way more to me than the money going to the ankle or even that my ankle works. What comes next, eternity, that's, that's where the life is. Let me read the, these couple of verses. If you're a note taker, Psalm 17, 13 through, four, uh, 13 through 15. Psalm 17, 13 through 15. The psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, confront the wicked, subdue the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of, whose, of, of, men of the world whose portion is in this life. So here's what the psalmist says. The, the wicked men say, my portion's in this life. My portion's in my job, my portion's in my bank account, my portion's in my family, my portion's in my food, my portion's in my stuff. The people who say, my portion is in this life, the Bible says, they're the wicked. You fill their womb, speaking of the wicked, with treasure. They are satisfied with their children. They leave all their abundance to their infants. But listen to what the psalmist says. But as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness when I wake up. So think, close my eyes in death, wake up in your presence. When I wake up, I will be satisfied with your likeness. Here's what the psalmist says. God, the wicked find all of their value in this life. Their, their entire portion, their entire inheritance, their entire worth is wrapped up in this world. And the psalmist says, as for me, as for me, my pleasure is that when I open my eyes after death, I'll be in your, in your presence. I'll see your face. That's what I'm living for. So here we are, the theology Jesus satisfies our need. And the reason I, I phrase it that way, need rather than needs, is because we're not going to always have everything we need from an earthly standpoint. One of the most, most abused verses in the Bible, Philippians 4.13, says this. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've seen it on gymnastics t-shirts, baseball t-shirts, little league t-shirts, football t-shirts. I've seen it painted in gyms. This will not make you hit the ball. This will not make you run faster. This will not make you pass the test. I cannot tell you how many people have come to me and said, I've got a test tomorrow, but Philippians 4.13, right? No, if you're stupid, you're stupid, you know? Like, if you didn't study, you didn't study, you know? Like, I mean, come on. That's not what it is. Paul says in Philippians 4, he says this. He goes, I've been well fed and I've been hungry. I've been naked and I've been clothed. I've had much and I've had nothing. And he said, and I've learned to be content whatever my circumstances are, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What he's saying is whatever circumstance I face, I can endure it because of who Jesus is. So when I say the theology, Jesus satisfies our need, please understand that I am not thinking about our food, I'm not thinking about our clothing or even our shelter. There have been plenty of believers through the history who didn't have those things. 
When I say Jesus satisfies our need, I'm speaking from eternity's perspective. Jesus has satisfied our need for eternal life. Jesus has satisfied our need for righteousness and for holiness in his blood, on the cross, in the empty tomb. Jesus satisfies our need. I have one need, and it has been met. That's the theology. Jesus satisfies our need. The application is make sure that your desire is on Jesus, not the stuff, not the gift bag. Oh my goodness, right? Like you go to the, ha- as a kid, I wanted a Happy Meal. Why? Because of the toy. I picked my cereal as a kid because cereal used to have cool toys in it. I picked my cereal as a kid because of the kind of toy that was pictured on the box. I'd eat anything for the little wall crawling octopus that you soaped up and then threw against the wall and he'd walk down. I'd eat anything for that guy. Those were the best. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It is cool, man. Super cool. You want to hear a cool story? A friend of mine had one one time. Don't ever throw them on a popcorn ceiling. They don't come down. I had one. I said, let's see how long this frog stays up there. Five and a half years. And he only came down because in their small group, somebody who had been there for the first time said, well, I'll get it down for you and knocked it down. It broke all of our hearts. Make sure, the application, make sure that your desire is for Jesus. And then here's our prayer. God, help us to find our satisfaction in you. Not the stuff, not the things. Help us to find our satisfaction in you. Theology, what? Jesus meets our need. Application, may our desire be for Jesus. And the prayer, God, help us to find our satisfaction in you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take about 30 seconds to a minute. I know that's not a long time, but I'm kind of hoping that it'll just start the process and then you'll continue it this week. By the way, One of the things, if you want to continue with this with your family, with your spouse, with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, we post online on our YouTube, on our website, on our Facebook page, community gathering videos. They're about seven or eight minutes long, and it'll recap this morning's sermon, and it'll end with three or four questions that you can discuss with each other that will help you further digest this. It'll be online by this evening, okay? But hear me say this, please. Just now, in this moment, would you just be honest and before God say, God, Help me to know if my desire is really for you. Help me to find my satisfaction in you and not my social status, not my bank account, not my health. Help me to find my joy in Christ. Would you take a moment just to ask God to help you find your satisfaction in him? Lord God, I thank you that I thank you that our needs are met in you. Our need is met in you. I ask God that you would help us to desire Christ and to glory in eternity, to not be swayed by the things of this world, to not be in love with the things of this world. God, that all of our hope and all of our joy and all of our confidence would come in what comes next, 
that one day we will close our eyes and when we wake, when we open them, when we stand in your presence, we will behold your likeness. We will be enveloped with your righteousness and your glory. Let that be the thing that our hope and our confidence rest in. Let us find our satisfaction in who you are and not what you might do for us. Lord God, we, we need you. Not just for the first moment of salvation, but until we meet you face to face, we need you. Every moment, we need you. We need our confidence to be in you, our hope to be in you. We need you, Lord God. You are the living bread. You are the bread of life. You are the true food. You are the thing that actually satisfies, the thing that actually fills us up. So God, I ask that you would help us to set all of our hope in you. Help us to be satisfied in you. And Lord, where there are needs in this body, help us to be faithful to meet them and to serve one another and to care for one another and to lift one another up in prayer. But as a church, Lord God, whether naked or clothed, rich or poor, well-fed or starving, may we say, that we are content in whatever circumstance we face, for we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.